and ain't no wannabes here With some not so nice advice for your writing career To be clear, no punches will be pulled But the punch may be spiked How they like before they get on the mic To my left we got the mighty Mer Lafferty And if I piss her off, believe me, she'll come after me And her co-host Matt Evan Wallace On the right, yes, she may be half as hype But she can take him in a fight So settle in, folks, buckle in and boot up Time to meddle in a way to make your writer shut up It's hard work, but the perk is that it's fun and exciting Facebook will still be there when you're done writing Ditch Diggers! Coming to you live from the Ditch Diggers Manor Venus Grotto, it is the Ditch Diggers with Mer Lafferty, Matt Wallace, and godmother of the podcast herself, Gail Carriger. How are you guys? Hello! Hi! Gail! It's very Matt! Exciting. This is exciting. We haven't had you <laughs> on in a long time. Yeah, it has been a while. I think the last time was the godparents... Yes. Little broadcast, anniversary broadcast or whatever it was that yeah. we did. Uh, that was fun. Back back in somebody's room at some convention or another, and the memories are all blurry. Yes, <laughs> we had Howard Taylor with us too, but now we have just you. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Howard, though. Like, oh, totally. Hey, Howard. Hi, Howard. <laughs> when he's not here. <laughs> yeah, that was in a we were, all, we were all in a room together back in the long, long ago when that was a thing that happened. Mm-hmm. And we weren't afraid <laughs> of each that. other. The word aerosolize was not mentioned, and didn't I need we were to sitting be sitting on the floor. <laughs> Memory serves. We've done quite a few podcasts from the floor. You know, it's not it's not an unusual thing with us. Yeah, it's comfy. It yeah. is comfy. Yeah. But, you know, I'm glad having you back on makes things feel a little normal again, Gail. And I thank you just for that. In addition uh, that's, to other things we have to be great. <laughs> I exist to normalize the universe. Yay. <laughs> so, how is everybody doing? I know that's always a complicated question, yet we keep starting the pod- every podcast by asking. <laughs> well, I think it's important because, you know, shit changes from time to time. If you're comfortable saying, Gail, where are you living now again? I can't remember. Oh, I live in Northern California. Oh, so, so how um, are you? <laughs> yeah. Just to date this, we just had the red sky apocalypse here yeah. in my neck of the woods, which was insane. Um, basically, we woke up Wednesday morning and uh, it was red. The world was red. And, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm not going to get out of bed today. And yeah. I just did it. So that was <laughs> that was great. Uh, yeah, it was insane. We have um, we have the marine layer here, um, and it had come in, and then the smoke from Oregon, all the fires around us and up in Oregon, had come in over on top of the marine layer, and so when the sun rose, it just had this weird visual effect. And uh, I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty sanguine about life in general. I, not a lot really bothers me that much. So I've been all right for the past four months however long it's been mm-hmm. but it turns out when the light changes for the whole world i'm like oh i oh this is this is this is the point where i stop yeah <laughs> so i stopped um but uh yeah but back to normal gray ash is in the air and it's smoky and gross and you know people are losing houses and ah, as, it, as the apocalypse is what to do yeah, um, I was giving Matt shit last night because he was whining about the fire tornadoes, and I'm like, look, dude, you just got to roll that into your work. But honestly <laughs> speaking, how are you doing with the fires, Matt? Well, we're, we are um, much further south. Okay. So we are very, in California, I should say, to make it clear. But we're, we're as blessed as you can be in the state to be to be relatively removed from, like, the, the furnace of the whole thing, but yeah. it's still, to begin at the onset of the week, it was still, you know, hazy and flashback looking outside and everything was getting ashed on. So anytime it's raining ash outside, it's pretty fucking unnerving. I think yeah. that's a fair statement to make, but trying to keep things in perspective and seeing things like the fire tornadoes just feeling blessed that there isn't one directly on top of our house yeah you know it could be a lot worse so so yeah you know try try to to sally forth with things like writing and podcasts and all of that while this is going on is not optimal but like i said trying to keep things 
in as much perspective as we possibly can. Um, but how about you, Mur? Because just because your state is not technically on fire does not mean you're not going through some shit, too. And I don't want to minimize that. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I am surprised that the hurricane season has thrown so many hurricanes through the Gulf instead of the Atlantic coast, um, because usually we get more than they do, and they're uh, going to be hit with their third tomorrow, I think. And we're still watching the ones that are closer to Africa than they are to here. But uh, weather-wise, we're doing fine. Uh, No hurricanes, no great droughts, fires. Did have an earthquake a little while ago, but I I slept through it, so I was mad about that. Um, Because apparently it was exciting. Because we are on a fault line, it just does not do much very often, so people forget about it. So, uh... That's about all the excitement we've had, but you know, things are, there's still a pandemic and there's, you know, still unrest and there's still politics from hell. And so it's, uh, the, the stress level is still ratcheted up a bit. So, um, but I am getting kind of fear fatigue because it's, it's funny thinking about how frightened I was and careful I was in the early days when we didn't have as many uh, cases and now things are, things are improving in North Carolina, but you know, a lot of places things are worse than ever. And we're just like, I'm too tired to worry. I I just, my worry muscle is just worn out, which I guess is possibly a bad thing because then you start to get lax on your careful measures. Wear your damn mask people. I just love the idea that your brain demands you be happy just for, like, a vacation from the rest of the things you've been feeling. <laughs> yeah. It's well, I like mean... depression or something. I'm not sure what to call it, but that's an interesting concept to me. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe happy's the wrong word, or just not... Just, you know, I guess numb is probably the right... Probably a better categorization for it. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. It's like, I... I... The entire year has felt like the scene in the movie Clue where all the lights go out and there's like three or four murders at once and the lights come back up and then the group of them are just walking from room to room, looking inside the room, seeing a dead body, and then moving on, closing the door, moving on to the next room, seeing the next (laughs) dead body. Nobody's reacting. They're all just like... Yeah, uh-huh. there's another one. Okay, <laughs> there's another fucking one. Okay, sure. Let's go find all the dead bodies and just mark them off the list. And then, yeah, so that that feels kind of like, I'm like, all right. Major really hurricanes and fires. Before. All right. Yeah, okay, yeah. that's a thing. Yeah, whereas an hour before they were freaking out over one murder. Yes. But- you know, within the span of, like, 45 minutes, it's like five murders are not as jarring as the first one an hour before that. So that's actually a really, really good analogy for, I think, our emotional journey this year. Yeah. The movie Clue, man, they knew. They, they did. Knew yeah, they understood people on a preternatural level. Very prescient. Especially the flames. Flames! <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. That was improv, I hear. She oh, she couldn't sorry. remember her line, and so she just started <laughs> yelling about the flames on the side of her face. Madeline brilliant, Tom, man. brilliant. She was oh. absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So yeah, so we're all, but we're all here, Mer. We are all here. I haven't talked to Gail in a long time, and I miss her. And, uh, but now isn't the time to catch up because we have business to talk about because that is what this show is about. And yes, let's talk about writing. While you have done an amazing career of uh, novels both for adults and uh, YA, you have delved into the world of nonfiction with uh, The Heroine's Journey. And when yep. is that out? Is it already out? Will it be out? I forgot the uh, release date. It's out on the 1st of October. So okay. I don't know when you got You guys drop pretty quickly on this podcast, right? So it'll be coming yeah. out shortly. And I'm actually... Uh, oh, those might have passed, but I'm releasing it early to people on my newsletter as well. So if you want to go grab it early, it's going two weeks early and two dollars, two bucks off. If you want to, oh, excellent, jump on my newsletter. Yeah. What what URL is that? <laughs> uh, it's my website, just gailherrer.com. Okay. Yeah. 
That's where the newsletter lives and lurks. That will all go in the show notes, and we highly recommend checking that out, because that's quite a bargain. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and uh, if you want to jump straight into Nitty Gritty, part of the reason I'm doing that specifically is uh, to control the uh, also bots on my um, page for this book, because it's nonfiction, so I don't want people to, like, go buy this book. I mean, you can buy it any way you want to, of course, but I don't want my my fiction readers to like on mass go get this book and then the 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 other books that are shown are all fiction books rather than non-fiction books and so uh, partly to do that i offered it to my readers early and cheaper so that they would all just buy it directly from me yeah um. and they can't say they were fooled <laughs> to believe it was a story Yes, exactly. So I'm like, look, everybody, like, we're making this very clear that it's nonfiction, you know. But that's, I mean, a lot of that legwork is also done by the cover and, you know, the title and everything. So hopefully nobody thinks it's it's a fiction book. No, that idea of uh, always having to explain what a book is, I don't, I don't feel like people who don't write books or publish books really understand how difficult and frustrating and complicated a seemingly uh, simple thing like that can be when it comes to dealing with a readership. Uh, you know, trying to trying to explain what a book is. You think, hey, you just you'll tell people what it is and what it's about, and that should be the end of it. But especially when you have an established brand like yours, Gail, dare I say, very well established. Few um, of other things can be can be a real trip. And you know, as Mark pointed out, you've done a lot of different things, so you, I'm sure you've dealt with this, you know, more than this one occasion. You know, writing way and writing all the different things that you have. And it and it's like it's basically managing reader expectations, right? Like, and that is something that you do as part of your narrative journey as a fiction author when you are writing your story. That's part of managing reader expectations is like the tropes that you're using and the archetypes and the plot and stuff. And then the cover art does all of this other work to manage reader expectations in terms of the buyer and stuff. And, and, you know, it's the same thing when you have a brand, you're still working to manage your reader expectations because they, whether they can articulate it to you or not, your fan base is also being like, I expect these things from Gail. Um, and, you know, if directly asked, they'll be like, I expect, you know, this checklist, but, you know, really it's all of this other sort of, rooted complexity in terms of like like I always give my readers heroine's journeys and I always give them found family and I always give them certain things and they may articulate that as Gail has good friendships in her books or you know um and and sort of teasing that out which is you know all of this has to do with your brand but also your voice as an author is like this sort of never-ending challenge for all of us I imagine and like what do readers want from me what are they expecting from me and (laughs) How do I give that to them? <laughs> what do you people want? What do you want? Just tell me what you want. And of so, course, people are notoriously bad at telling you what they want. Of course, you're just supposed to know. Um, so when it comes to different, uh, uh, drastically different books, people like Ursula Vernon and Shauna McGuire have just gone to uh, pen names. And, yes. been, and they're both open with their specific fan base of, hey, look, if you like my writing... This is my pen name. I write kind of different books about it. But there were, like, especially Ursula, she's worried that people are going to pick up her horror novels when, I mean, I don't yes. want to go to the bookstore where, think, you know, the Dragon Breath and the Twisted Ones are, are shelved right next to each other. But uh, I guess that would be online, actually, now. But uh, that that was a course to take, and you didn't take it. Can you tell me about that? Because I know we have one listener who's been asking about pen names on the Discord mm. recently. So why didn't you go that route? So um, so there's a there's so there's several different ways to to manage pen names, like you said. So what Ursula does is uh, has completely different pen names for the different um, books. Be- Partly because Ursula also writes children's books. Yes, exactly. So like that, like children's children's picture books. And that's like, woo. Um, and so that's one course. And then like the reverse of that would be somebody like Jane Yolen, who wrote, um, sim- who had a sim- who has a similar career to Ursula's in terms of children's books and um, adult books and very complicated adult books. In fact, you know, complex sci-fi and stuff like that. Um, and 
uh, Jan Yolen wrote everything under the same name. So those are like the two ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I fall somewhere in the middle. So I did something called a wedded pen name, which is basically where I share the last name with all of the different ways I write. Mm-hmm. Um, and I separated those books because I write young adult under Gale Carragher. I separated it by heat level. So I have some very sexy stuff with explicit sex in it. And that's under G.L. Carragher. But it's both Carragher. It's Carragher for both. Um, And that was just... uh, And and I specifically put a lot of effort into making sure my fan base knew that I was changing my name and I was doing it. It wasn't... Otherwise, they're going to blame the publisher (laughs) and get mad at the publisher for um, making Gail change her name because she put sex in her books. Which, you know... um, and uh, and so I did things like I uh, I sent out a survey to all of my readers to help to have them help me pick what the L would stand for. Oh, you really? Know? Like like you know, to, and, and this is mostly just to get it into the zeitgeist that the GL is my choice, and that it means something explicitly different. But I also very much like I also changed the cover art for those books to indicate that they're different and that sort of thing. Um, so that that was the route I went. And, like, to be perfectly frank, it's just because I didn't want to have multiple different websites. Hmm. <laughs> like I just don't want to – or social media accounts or anything. I was like, I just want it to be perfectly clear that I'm both GL and Gail Carragher. Mm-hmm. And and, but so my legwork – so you're going to be doing legwork either way when you choose a pen name. Your legwork, your legwork is either going to be to establish the new pen name as a completely separate brand and what it means – or your legwork is going to be explaining to your existing fan base why the the wedded pen name is different and what it means. So you're you're doing legwork either way, and I just t- chose because I had such an established platform. I just chose to do the second kind of legwork for for when I rebranded. And I actually did with this nonfiction book. I thought about doing it under yet another name, and it would have been G- Gail L. Carragher. Um, but I was like, that's just too much work. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, and I also didn't and don't think that like nonfiction is going to be a regular thing I do. Mm-hmm. So like I, I wrote this book cause I was like, I just, just someone has to write this book. Um, and I was frustrated that it didn't exist and, and I don't, but I don't want to turn myself into somebody who, who really specializes in nonfiction or does it consistently. It's just so much work, Mur. You've written nonfiction. Why is it so much work? <laughs> because you can't hand wave anything. You can't claim, uh, what is it? Just, you can't claim that you made a choice based on the story rather than history. I mean, uh, I believe, what was it? Hamilton's story was tweaked to better fit a narrative that Lin-Manuel Miranda wanted to tell. And it's not historically accurate in a lot of places. But it's fiction. He's not doing a history class, so he got away with it. But when you're, if he were writing the, the book that Churchill wrote, uh, he could not have decided that uh, Philip was alive, wasn't alive in 1800. Which was it? I can't remember. Yeah, Philip wasn't alive in 1800 because he, yeah, in, in, this, in the story. Yeah, it's, it is, exactly. It, it's just... It's just work. So, like, so I, I guess I got lazy out the back end of this book where I was like, it's just going to be under Gale because I can't. Huh, uh, um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, pen names are an interesting, you know, back to the, the, the questions on the subject of pen names. You know, they're interesting choices to make. Um, I, and one of the things I, I like to remind people as someone who has worked under a pen name for, you know, over a decade now is um, it's also not witness protection. So be aware that people are going to figure out your real name. Like, they're not going to care for a long time. And then if you make it in any substantial way, then Wikipedia will find out what your real name is and it will be out there in the world. So just be aware of that about pen names. Yeah, then you you got to talk about why you chose it. I mean, some people, um, like, I, I... had a listener, he told me this a long time ago, uh, he got excommunicated from his church because they found out what he wrote. So there's like, there's that level and there's, you don't want your boss to know you write smut. And, but on the other hand, it's just, if you don't want your name on the book for whatever reason, 
does it harm you for them to find out? I, I actually, I, I don't look myself up on the internet because I know I'm going to find something that'll freak me out or upset yep. me. Even if it's like a tiny <laughs> little uh, one weakness about her books is this. I'll just be like that. My day's ruined. I am, yes. I am that sensitive. So I, I don't. <laughs> my, my legal name is not a super big secret. Uh, I don't know if it's on Wikipedia or not, but I've never had anybody decide they want to be my buddy by pretend by, by calling me by my name, which nobody but like the bank and my dentist uses because they won't actually ask me the simple question on the form of what would you prefer to be called. But uh, I, I, I oh, <clears throat> go on. I've had it happen and it freaked me out. Oh no! Um, yeah, relatively early on, uh, a convention just lifted my Wikipedia. Oh no! And stuck it in as my bio, and I was like, "There are so many things wrong with this choice you just made." Not the least of which is Wikipedia is wrong about a lot of stuff about me, um, because Wikipedia won't let you correct yourself. Yeah. And so there's like things like my birthday that I've intentionally put out incorrectly because <laughs> I don't want my people to know my birthday. At, you know. Um, so, so they just lifted it and they put my real name in the program when I was a GOH at a small con and people were calling me by my real name at that convention. And it messed with my head every single time because no one has called me by my real name forever. Like I've never gone by it. I've always gone by something else, um, with different friendship groups and stuff. It was why it was so easy for me to adapt to a pen name. Yeah. But, um, and I hate, like I viscerally hate my real name. And so when somebody calls it the only times ever used is when someone when my parents were really mad at me as a kid <laughs> so like there I am walking around this convention and people are calling me by my real name and every single time my hackles go up and I'm like oh god what did I do wrong you know, it was just it was I'm a, in a trouble. truly terrible I was a terrible experience wow um, yeah, no, like a nightmare. <laughs> that is like the front of the class naked at the blackboard nightmare come to life that is horrible <laughs> Yeah, it was it was rough. I was like, oh, okay, so that goes in the convention writer. Yeah, <laughs> like, don't pull the. Here's the bio. Here's here's four different bios for you to pick from, depending on what length you want. <laughs> don't use Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, general. I think that's a general note for anyone organizing something like that or working with authors is don't don't ever rely on the Wikipedia page. It's funny because occasionally I'll go to Wikipedia and look up other authors to be like, what did they let get through the crowd? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm I'm oddly proud of the fact that if you look up a lot of authors, there's a whole section on their personal life. And I don't even have that section in my Wikipedia. So I'm like, well, I'm winning on one front. Right. <laughs> I do always wonder about that. I wonder what dictates who gets the personal life section and who doesn't. It's a very strange, it's a very strange uh, difference between a lot of Wikipedia pages that I've read. And yeah, I don't ever want a personal life section in my Wikipedia page. That just sounds horrifying to me on so many levels. Yes. Um, just someone writing, you know, secondhand about just that, just that, this, just that phrase, personal life. It's like, should, this feels like this should not be on here. But This is a public forum. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah. but that's, I mean, that's the price we pay for very 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 minor celebrity status i suppose is like there comes a point where you're like oh yeah i mean my general rule and you can use this to apply to whether you choose to publish your fiction or nonfiction, i suppose or not is like if you don't want it found out don't put it on the internet period it doesn't matter like how i mean unless you're freaking a whiz with vpns and anonymity you know mm -hmm. a, a white hack or whatever but like generally speaking um the internet can find it out like, connect it and connect it to you if they want to <laughs> so, yeah yeah just don't put it up there if you don't want to find out no absolutely i think that's a good at this point that's just a good rule of thumb in life for anyone doing anything ever um yep. yeah yeah I want to talk more about uh, the heroine's journey, like in particular. But I did, I did have a question because you were talking earlier, Gail, about uh, managing reader expectations, and it, it made me wonder: do you do you recall like the first major point in your career where you became aware of that idea? Because uh, you know you've done this for for a while and you've done so many things. I'm just curious, like when in your particular journey can you recall where that first became a concept that you were aware of, and then one that you actively tried to manage going forward. That is a really good question because it is a realization. And like most of us as authors come to writing as readers and we don't realize as readers how our expectations, what like what we come to books with, you know, like and, and 
So, and I've always, I think as a reader, been particularly attached to this because I hate admitting to this, but I'm going to admit to it anyway. I am one of those people who picks up a book or used to back in the day when they were all physical and flips to the last page, reads the last page, and then would decide whether I was going to buy the book or not. Because if it didn't end happily, I was not interested in reading it. Wow. Um, yeah. And I don't care. And I, I, to this day, I do. <laughs> Fuck you all, I don't care. I don't care. Uh, to this day, I want spoilers for movies. Like, I, I, it does not impact my enjoyment of something. I'm a rereader. I think that's part of it. Like, it doesn't, I can reread the same book over and over and over again and yeah. get something out of it every time. I don't care about knowing what happens in the plot. I don't care. <laughs> the plot is not as important to me as, like, the relationships and the, and the um, you know, the characters within the book and how they interact with each other. So, and then that's, so I've always been particularly attached, obviously, to this idea of expectations. Um, and I, and I, so I always knew going in as a writer that there were certain things that I was going to satisfy because I'm not satisfied with a book unless it has these elements. Um, but I think I first encountered the idea of like a broad spectrum, like a reader base and its expectations with my second book. So the second book I wrote, Changeless, has a cliffhanger ending for the romantic element of the main couple. In just kind of in general. Um, it has this sort of cliffhanger. And now I come to writing from science fiction and fantasy. And as far as I'm concerned, if you're writing a trilogy or whatever, you kind of expect the middle book to have a cliffhanger. That's sort of the par for the course right mm -hmm. like star wars or whatever right you, the, the middle book has a cliffhanger that's uh how you get a third book um so right uh, so when i put that cliffhanger in i was like that's fine uh, what i didn't realize is how many of my readers were romance readers at that juncture because i was still very early on in my career um and to this day if someone comes up to me and says oh my god i hated changeless i'm like you're a romance reader <laughs> aren't you uh, because <laughs> They are not used to that. They do not expect a cliffhanger from their from any of their books. Um, even, you know, in a conjoined series, they expect at least their romance to be somewhat happy at the end of every single one. That's true, because so, they, they, re they request a happy ever after. That's like one of the, the hardcore rules of romance that anytime exactly. anybody breaks it, they just look askance at you like, really? Oh, really? they're so mad. Yeah, they're so mad. Um, and so that that was the first moment where I was like, oh, so... I was managing a set of expectations that I came to from this subgenre of commercial genre fiction. And I had all of these readers that came to me from a different genre. And so um, that was the moment where I was like, oh, there are reader expectations that are sort of conditional on the different genres. And I need to be more thoughtful about understanding those and where they come from and where they're sourced and stuff. So that was, that was for me, that moment. No, I think that's yeah. That that speaks to a lot of uh, of different aspects of of doing this kind of work, especially working like that in different genres. It's just so much, man. There's so much that you're completely unprepared for when you get into this. Because, like you said, we all, most of us at least, come from just being readers, and you think, oh, I'll just write a story like the stories I've loved, and people will experience it exactly the way I experienced those stories, and it'll all be peaches and cream. And then there's all this. Horrible admin stuff. <laughs> but it's also like the flip side is knowing this and learning more about it can also help you in certain ways with in terms of like writer's block and that kind of thing. Like if you're if you hit up on something and you're like, I don't like know what to do plot wise or I don't know what to do character wise right now. If you know your end game is a romantic element or you're at, you're writing a hero's journey or you're writing a heroine's journey, then you have a better idea what toolkit you're going to be using. So like, I think it can also the, the like, yes, it can paralyze you in terms of like, if you think about it too much when, especially when you're a beginning writer, if you think about the market too much, it can totally paralyze you. But the flip side is if you have some sort of intent behind your writing, it can actually help you. Um, That's really interesting. I've never, I've honestly never looked at it that way, but I guess it does give you uh, just a more critical way of looking at your own work and your own process and filtering it through that, through that, through that lens. That's really and wild. It, and it can tell you why reviewers are angry about something, right? Like, like generally speaking, when you're getting really bad reviews, if we unpack the, like, it's just badly written or it's not edited or those sorts of things, um, 
But like generally speaking, when you're getting bad reviews, it's because some part of expectations are being mismanaged. So, you know, whether you're like her or not, or you're looking at your reviews or not, like if you're getting a bunch of one stars from romance readers because you're me and you wrote a book that was intended for a sci-fi fantasy audience um, and it had a cliffhanger, then, you know, that tells me something about the expectations that I didn't set up properly. And those expectations are set up by your narrative or your cover art or your description or what have you. So, Man, that also blew my mind just a little bit too. That's totally true. And, and something else I think a lot of us don't consider. Now, do you feel like that helps you deal with the emotional side of bad reviews more yes for me yeah yeah absolutely because you know like and that again i i was sort of lucky super early on when my first my first review at all period in the world was a one-star review on goodreads um of course of course right and it was from a dude because always a dude who picked up uh who picked up an arc of Solus that they were handing out at BEA that year. And, um, and he basically said, uh, this is not the kind of book I read. I didn't read it. And then give it one <laughs> star. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, this is actually a great thing to have happen early on because that's the thing, right? Like it wasn't the right book for him. Uh, and so he gave it one star. And so ever since then, I was like, right, one star is like, the book is not the right book for you. Like, okay. Uh, that doesn't say anything about me or the book or anything. like nine times out of 10, like that book, like someone picked up the book who shouldn't have read it. Absolutely. It was a wrong reader. Cause there's no on, book that's for everybody. There's the, that Amazon book. Is, and they're complaining no. about a shipping mistake in your one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do. And, and occasionally like that, that's not to say that occasionally I'm not hurt. If like a, a super fan or like, you know, somebody who has read a ton of my stuff and loves me normally suddenly like reacts really, really badly to a book for some reason or another. Um, like that, that is, that is an issue. Like occasionally I'm like, Oh, I didn't, that's my fault. Like I didn't manage the expectations correctly. Um, but, mo- but you know, 99.9% of the time, a one star has something to do with reader expectations. And, 90% of the time with reader expectations, you can't control what they bring. Like you can't p- control the life experience somebody brings to your book. You know, like, like someone will come to one of my books and be like, this was really triggering for me. And so I hated it. And I was like, well, I didn't know, like you had a bad experience with custard. Like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> like I didn't put a trigger warning for, you know, death in a vat of custard. I'm, uh, you know, my bad. So, you know, like that, that's, that, that's the, the other side of it. I just, what? Yeah, I, I just wish people would realize that, I mean, even if a book is, is triggery, it's, it's, that doesn't mean it's bad. It means that you didn't enjoy reading it and maybe would have preferred to have some sort of trigger warning. But I've, I've been doing a lot of thinking and uh, sorry, to, I, I, the reference is going to bring the mood down a little bit. I'm sorry. But um, I remember hearing about uh, a book Robin McKinley wrote that was about... Uh, sexual abuse and in a fantasy Deer- setting yes thank thank you deerskin deerskin and it's like reading the plot summary my my soul just died i just i'm just like i i would never want to touch this book and robin mckinley was formative in my r- fantasy reading growing up i loved her stuff and i'm just like why would she write something like this and i was reading about the book and hearing so many people had seen it as a step in their journey to heal and so that's when it really hit me that not every book is for you, but there might be people for whom it's vitally important. Yeah, uh, I, I had the same experience with Dear Skin, I have to say. Uh, I'm here, incidentally, for your 90s um, women fantasy <laughs> authors. Um, Yay! But uh, where it, she brought, I remember that book coming out, so uh, that will date me. And... Um, and my best friend at the time, we shared readers, and I love McKinley. She's one of my absolute favorite authors. And uh, my best friend was like, oh, I'm going to read it. And I was like, I'm not going to read it. <laughs> and um, and it, it was really important for her and really significant and powerful for her. And I, to this day, haven't read it because I was like, nope, that's one of my things I don't, I'm not going to read. Um, yeah. And and yeah, and I love McK- I, I, I this is this is going to be a humble brag, but I got to write the foreword for um, Forgotten Beast of Eld at one point for the re-release. Yeah, that was one of my like it's like oh. to this day one of the great highlights of my author life. <laughs> <laughs> I was 
was like, I got to write the part. Uh, because Forgot Me Zavala is like one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, it's just, and, and just as a complete aside, since this is a writing business advice uh, podcast, is um, what, if you want to write reviews as an author, go write positive reviews on Goodreads about some of your favorite books, because maybe the day will come when a small press discovers that you wrote a glowing review of one of your you know, great <laughs> goddesses and then asks you to write the foreword to their book because you wrote a review on Goodreads. <laughs> that is really interesting. That's a positive way of using Goodreads I hadn't thought of. That's really cool. Oh, yeah. I use I love Goodreads. I use it all the time. I, I know a lot of authors have a real contentious relationship with it. But um, but I do. And I only I review positively. Uh, sometimes yeah. I'll review a nonfiction book negatively. I'll be like, but this was not informative. Um, but most of the time, if it's fiction, I, I'll review positively. And um, and and I've had a lot of, and I can also direct readers there. I'll be like, just look at my five-star reviews on Goodreads and you will know what kind of books I like and what kind of books I would recommend. You know, like they're all right there. Um, so, you know, when people ask me questions about what I'm reading or what I want to read, I was like, I have Goodreads for that. <laughs> so what do you but, do if you read a book that is okay? Do you log it on Goodreads? Do you what? Do you lie in your reviews? Do you not leave a review, or leave a star, um, or what? I don't. I don't. I just don't. It just doesn't make anything. It just doesn't show up. I don't okay. do anything with it. Yeah, I don't use Goodreads like a reader would. I I don't use it to like keep track of everything I'm reading or anything like that. I I started out doing that because I wasn't a writer when I did that, and then once I became more published and networking more I had to go through and I actually deleted a few of my reviews because some of them I, I do believe that really passionate negative reviews still comes from a place because you moved it comes from a good place because you moved the person that much yes yes for them to write I the agree. review and there is a there's a book that I loved I absolutely loved it but there was one uh, one or two aspects of it that I thought were wretched they were terrible and I just really needed to tell people that if you just took this thing out, it would be perfect. And I went back and deleted that review because <laughs> I just, yeah, I, I would not want it, that to come out if I were like on a panel with somebody or, uh, yeah. Exactly. I actually have a, I have a couple of rants I do, and I don't think I've ever done this. This is mostly done this rant in like private author forums and chat groups and stuff where I'm like, it's, and it, the rant is learning to love your one star reviews. Yeah. Um, because you, you do learn, like you don't have to read them, but you learn something from them. And one of the things is that if you have moved someone to that level of anger, it's <laughs> like, well, I did something like what else, if, if I'm a writer, what else do I exist on this earth for, but to emotionally move? people as a as a fiction author like that's what we do we're like little ins insidious machiavellian like emotion manipulators so like if i moved you that much that you got that mad at my little book like okay <laughs> all right at least i did had impact on you but also those one stars can also tell you things like i i talked about earlier about you mismanaged research expectations or or your cover art is wrong or something like that i think marco Kluse got uh somebody ordered something off Amazon and they got the Amazon got the order completely wrong and sent a Marco Kluse book instead. And they, they were so angry. They went and found the book on Amazon and gave it a one star review because it is not what they ordered. That clearly is Marco's fault. <laughs> yeah. That's the other thing is, is you have this, you have this terrible thing with books that happens as an author, which is your name is on the cover. Mm -hmm. So, anything wrong with that book so far as a reader is concerned is your fault like anything that goes on wrong with production you know like right now we're looking at printer delays and a paper shortage so like books are going to start shipping slower and slower and slower you know who's going to be blamed for that yeah. us authors we're yeah. all going to be blamed for it and we're like literally we couldn't be more distanced from that aspect of the writing but our names are on it so it'll take the blame uh, which kind of sucks <laughs> but there yeah is. yeah um i wanted to ask you something about your career as a whole but just want to make sure is there anything else you want to bring up about your your new book that we have not touched on because we've been uh, we've been going on tangents <laughs> and chatting away but time is passing so <laughs> this is always how we do it yes um, i will say sort of tangential to that discussion one of the things i am anticipating writing nonfiction is more one-star reviews because I feel like 
once you put yourself out there in, in a, as a critical role of, in, in my case, like pop culture analysis and stuff like that, you're going to get people who have like very serious opinions on the subject that are counter to your own. And I think, um, I, I think I'm looking down the gut of much uh, lower reviews in general score wise when I write nonfiction. And part of that is like if you if you if anybody out there wants to take a look at some of my books and like the average reviews and stuff like that, you'll see for most of my fiction, it's pretty high. And that's because I have an active like vocal reader base and I'm really good at catering to it at this juncture, you know, after 30 odd books that like I kind of know what they want and I give it to them and I'm, I'm getting better and better at managing the expectations. So when I write something high heat or sci fi or something that's different for me, they still kind of know what they're in for. And that shows in my average reviews. Um, but with nonfiction, I think you face a different thing. Um, so, you know, we've been, we've been talking mostly about fiction, but, um, nonfiction, especially critical nonfiction is, is where, where I am criticizing other genre, you know, genres and stuff. So I just wanted to say that, like, I, I guess writing fiction and coping with one stars has me sort of prepared for this, but I am pretty terrified <laughs> about it. <laughs> But I don't know, Murph, you've noticed that, whether your your nonfiction books get, get substantially different reviews than I, 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 I haven't looked, actually. And, um, oh, right. You said you don't. That's yeah, right. but uh, I've gotten positive emails from I Should Be Writing uh, readers. And the only thing people didn't like was the fact that the writing prompts were not... Again, they blamed me. The writing prompts were not in the ebook, And we had to fight to uh, get the ebook out there in the first place uh-huh. and then they didn't put big and and the publisher's thought was well i mean you can't write in the ebooks and because the the physical book came with writing prompts and then like journal pages uh-huh. so they they that that's the only thing i got dinged on but um i think yours are going to have a broader appeal than just my specific writing book and um, I, I'm excited to see how it's it's uh, received because it's you're talking about stuff that people don't talk about, and that's always going to be awesome. Yeah, I I am I I wrote this almost ex- I wrote this book because I kept talking about the heroine's journey as an alternative narrative model to the hero's journey, substantially different, and not the biological sex of your protagonists. Uh, men can be her- heroines or heroes, and women and and non-gendered and agendered characters can be either one. Like, but I kept talking about it at conventions. This just kind of came out of con- conventions initially. It's like we'd be casually chatting about narrative arcs, and someone would mention the hero's journey, and like yours truly at the other end of the table would be like, "And the heroine's journey," um, and someone in the audience would inevitably be like, "Well, how's that different?" And I was like, "Well, this is not a lecture on the heroine's journey. <laughs> like, how much do you know about the hero's journey? Like, let's analyze that first, and then you know." That kind of thing. So um, eventually I was like, oh, I got to write a book. I just got to be like, here, have this book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and now you can I mean, hand it out at conventions or have now it. Now I could just be like, yes, here's yeah. the book. <laughs> Go read it. Uh, come back. We'll have a chat. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of how it came to be. <laughs> um, I but just like back... the idea you wrote a whole book to be able to answer questions easier at a convention. <laughs> She does a lot of conventions. No, I'm not being glib. Like I think that's, I think that's great. Like uh, if somebody asks you that question, you can be like, "It's funny you should ask." Here's it's funny you should It's brilliant. I love it. Which is not to say there aren't there are you know a couple of books out there that like either mention the heroine's journey or are it, but they tend to be kind of Campbell-esque, Jungian psychological analyses of this is your personal journey kind of thing. And I was like, I want a real like beats layout plots and archetypes and structure structural usages that's like intended for authors or writers or screenwriters or what have you and also for readers or watchers of pop culture who can like so that they have the training to identify this journey much in the same way that we all can identify the hero's journey now or most of us can so yeah that's that's why i wrote it i wrote it because there was this void that i was getting frustrated wasn't filled and i was waiting for an academic who had a better foundation than me to do it and they never did it and so finally i was like fine i will do a patch for this I'll release the heroine's journey DLC. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. I love, I love that. I love that because that's that's like really the best reason to write any book because you don't feel like it exists and you want it to exist. 
I'm yep. not a good trooper fiction or nonfiction. I also just love the hardest thing to get as a writer is like instructions. Everybody has really vague existential advice and nobody has actual instruction to give you on so many things. So it's always nice to see nuts and bolts kind of advice and approaches to things. So I yeah, love and, and talking about, I think uh, this is going to tie into Murr's like question, but like talking about layout of the book, like you, you said, Murr, where they did, they were missing the prompts in the ebook. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like something I had to focus on a lot, the difference between the ebook and the print book, because you use nonfiction differently as a, as a reader, as an end user mm-hmm. for these. And I was like, oh, so like, the, I, like it took a lot of more focus on the table of contents because you're nonfiction often judged by its table of contents at the beginning. And so I was like, okay. And when I'm doing the print book, I'm like, you need to be able to flip to things. And that was part of it is like, I was like, I want, a writer who doesn't want to read about the myths and who doesn't want to read about the foundation uh, to be able to just flip to the section where I'm like, here's your beats. Like, here's how you fix your story here. You know, like here's, here's how the archetypes are used, you know, or another reader who's like, I don't know anything about Gothic archetypes or how they're applied in genre fiction to be able to just flip to that section and be like, here are all your archetypes. Like here are all your tropes. (laughs) Here's like, here's your toolkit. Um, and so it was a, and that's a completely different approach than when you're writing fiction and you're like, you want people to just pick up the book, start at the beginning and end at the end. Right. Right. Um, so that was an interesting new way to have to train my brain. That's really interesting. Always be training our brains. Yeah. I feel like I have to train my brain for every new book I write, regardless of whether it's in the same genre or not. It's always something new, which I guess it should be, you know. If you're not having to retrain your brain, you're probably writing the same shit over and over again. So I guess it's, but it can well, be exhausting. There are readers who want that. Yeah, <laughs> so. there are. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that, no, that's and that's my own personal thing. Like there, you can make an amazing career out of doing that, and there's nothing. And honestly, there's nothing wrong with that. You're doing something well, and you do it, and you just keep doing that. You know, more power to you. But especially if you're not getting bored and you're happy to do it, then yeah, yeah keep yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's my own ingrained, uh, you know, you always have to keep pushing yourself to do new and dangerous things and blah, 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 whatever the hell that even means. So yeah. definitely my bias showing there. But no, that's that's perfectly, perfectly true. Somebody uh, in the podcasting realm whose name I have long since forgotten since this was back in the early days said you should always move in the direction of greatest courage. I trust that was a great concept. That is. Art. I haven't heard that before. That That I is interesting. I wish we could attribute that. That's really good. Problem is, I'm a very <laughs> literal person, and I'm like, which way is that? Come on! I... <laughs> Can I get latitude and Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I did want to talk a little bit, Gail, about your fiction career, because it's gone in such a fascinating direction, because you've been traditionally published, um, both in adult and YA, but you have taken that to self-pub when a lot of people assume that the path goes the other way. Yeah, it was. So it's kind of your fault. Oh, okay. Uh, (laughs) 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 Um, So for those who aren't familiar with my history with Murr out there, um, I was an early listener of I Should Be Writing way, way, way back in the day. Um, and that's because I was an early consumer of podcasts and, um, I found Murr because of that. There was like a select few authors who were podcasting and talking about the business side of being podcasters. Um, and then there were a select few authors who were podcasting their fiction way back then as well. Mm -hmm. And so, and a lot of those early podcasters eventually became the first self-published authors that I was aware of. Uh, And so I have always, even though I was traditionally published, followed self-publishing and being wildly intrigued and interested by it because of podcasters. (laughs) um, And then I know I got involved with some local romance writers who are always kind of the forefront of, you know, experimental um, publishing and doing new things with technology and stuff. And so Um, And so from the very beginning, partly because of like all of my training in like how to talk to your readers and how to, you know, deal with your fan base came from podcasters. I've sort of acted like I've been a self-published author, even though I wasn't. Uh, And so I think I found that transition more interesting and appealing and also kind of 
something that always been sort of percolating in the back of my head that I, I wanted to try and I wanted to do. So very early on, I self-published a bunch of short stories that I had. So I had sort of like some content early up there on the internet, which was just me playing with the platforms and stuff. Um, and and I always paid attention to what self-published authors were doing in terms of like newsletters and um, interactions with fans and social media and stuff like that. Uh, and so I think I was sort of game to try as soon as the reputation for self-publishing kind of died as, as a, you know, when we were first coming up as authors, self-publishing was like a dirty word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, when that pivot happened and, and it became evident that, especially with electronic books, that uh, readers don't know or care. Uh, so long as the quality controls are in place, they, yes. they're like, to this day, I will get emails from readers who are like, why can't I get this book in print in this country? And I'll just be like, um, that's a self-published book. <laughs> they're like, what? What are you talking about? It looks just like all of your other books. And I'm like, yes, success. <laughs> but... Um, so, yeah, um, or, or the reverse happens a lot now, too, where I get complaints because they can't get my traditional book, and I'm like, uh, I didn't sell the rights to that country. I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, different things are in place with the different um, types of public publishing. But, yeah, so I, I, I guess that's a long way of saying I was sort of primed to try self-publishing, and I was sort of dabbling in it already. Um, and so I just started to do it with novella-length stuff, um, in the universe that I had established and was already written. And th that was because I wanted to write, uh, to what Matt said, I wanted to write sort of slightly more experimental stuff that I didn't think my traditional publisher would be at all interested in. That would be like standalones or spinoffs or like a mystery set in my universe or a romance, like a queer romance set in my universe. Just because I wanted to experiment with some of the subgenres that I have access to as a as an author, but I wanted to do it with side characters that I loved. Um, and so my publisher doesn't do novellas anyway, uh, and I'm out of contract with a novella. In other words, I don't have to offer it to them. So I basically was just like, all right, we'll just play for a bit and see if my readers are interested in following me into some of these strange places. Um, and they were. And so it worked out great. So I'm mostly self-published now. And I'm not against trad, and I still do. You know, so one of the things that I do now is I write a bunch of novellas, and then I will bundle them, and I will sell the rights to Subterranean Press, which does really fancy hardback editions. Yes. They're small press. Um, and so beautiful. my beautiful, beautiful books. And so my super fans who want a collector's edition have that option and I don't have to do that myself which which you know people like Brandon Sanderson do but like I don't have the I don't have the fan base or the industry in place or the works in place or a team in order to do that sort of thing but so so I've in other words I'm kind of turning my self-published stuff when it's in print into sort of a, a luxury good um, and so that my my super super fans who are really excited by something like that would be like oh and it's signed and you know that's beautiful cover and stuff um so you know the, so i'm doing some kind of interesting things that i have access to because i came out of trad but as a self-published author as well um but do so, you yeah think, you think your experience with traditional publishing allowed you to know what steps to take that a unpublished to self-published author won't think because a lot of people think well i can't sell this so i'm just going to self-publish it and it's like find a, a find a cheap cover artist or god forbid open your own image software um, <laughs> and then make sure it's like you you format it in caliber and you throw it up on amazon and and you <laughs> you made sure that your art this is the this is the thing that impressed me the most because i'm not graphically minded at all and so when i recognize a brand continuing i'm really impressed and and you did that with your self-published book. If if you, people laid out the covers, it'd be hard to just to tell which one was self-published and which one was traditionally. And that's I actually, if you Google Gail Carriger cover art or something like that, you'll get a blog post where I actually talk all about this. And I use you know my own covers as images, and I explain kind of what I did, both to sort of avoid copyright infringement, um, but also um, 
just like the elements of the brand that my traditional publisher had given me and how I pivoted that. And that and that is part of it. So Orbit, my original publisher, gave me a very distinct cover and a very distinct cover brand, which now looks kind of derivative. But at the time, because I was one of the first second wave steampunk authors, like has a very it has a really distinct look, my first cover. And it won a ton of awards. It was gorgeous. Um, Yeah. And 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 that was not me. Right. That was all the art department. It was actually Little Brown's art department way back that did the very first cover. Um, And so. Orbit stuck with that for the first series, and then Little Brown, who's my um, young adult, Little Brown Books for Young Readers, um, who's my young adult publisher, they are under the same umbrella house, Hachette, and so they used, they pivoted, but used very similar branding for the second series that I wrote, which was my young adult series, right down to sort of... um, um, modeling the colors of the book so the first book is pink and the second book is blue you know kind of thing um, and uh, for both series and then they did it again when I did my spin-off adult series with Orbit which was my third series and my second series with Orbit um, again they took the cover art that they kind of had established for my brand and pivoted it slightly um, and so they had sort of set this all up for me. And fortunately for me, it's photo manipulation on my covers, which is the cheapest and easiest <laughs> to imitate. Um, and so I turned around and took those covers and took, you know, the like iconic aspects of those covers and, and talked to my my cover art designer, Starla. And I was like, this is what we want to do. Um, but we can't be it can't be exactly the same thing. But, you know, um, let's let's go with these. And then I, I also. Um, which a lot of self-published authors don't. I have, you know, extra money to spend to try and get it as right as possible. Um, so I went out and like bought, instead of using stock art um, for my steampunk ones, I went out and bought photography of steampunk people that's out in the world um, from the photographers directly. Um, and that was a factor of having contacts in the steampunk universe at that juncture from having gone to all of these conventions and stuff. Um, so that's that's how I did that aspect of kind of the transition and brand management was. But I am a, a super visual. I'm a super. I'm a visual, real visual person. So like I tend to have to draw stuff when I'm writing anyway. Like draw fight scenes and sketches, sketch house structures and layouts, and like I use Pinterest quite a bit for characters and stuff like that. So like. Um, the visual part of book covers and stuff like that is something that I love and I'm very excited about and interested in already. So it helped. So do you just have a sketchbook somewhere with like fight scenes that you've sketched out and things like that? Yeah, I do. I actually, mine would be filled with stick figures. So, yeah, <laughs> oh, there's exactly. stick figures. Don't there's stick figures. I'm not a good artist. <laughs> <laughs> now I want to see it even more. Let's see <laughs> um, in fact, I will. I'll have to do um, read when I was writing the finishing school books, which is the books, which are the mo- books that of mine that involve the most close fighting because it's spies um, and assassins. Uh, my partner and I would have to do, I'd be like, okay, uh, if you had an ha- arm around my neck and we're trying to strangle me this way, like, where can I kick you? you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it was fun. You got to see all your books rewritten now as stick figure graphics. <laughs> oh yes. My God. That's I awesome. I think that would be amazing. Uh, the all problem- right, Mer, unless, uh, unless you have anything else, we're coming up on time here, yeah. sadly. I know. Tragically. I was going to say, it's it's bad that we're good friends because this always turns into a very entertaining uh, <laughs> discussion, but I've got, like, so many more questions about not only brand management, but your audience management, because I know that you are very close with your fans, and I would love to talk about that some more, so I hope we can get you on before, like, years pass again. Oh, anytime, you guys. Anytime. I woke up first thing in the morning for this, so, like, I am game. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if I don't know how much time we have, if you want to do like super quick rapid fire, we can try. But, um, but we'll no, I, I'd want to. I'd want to really. I really want to get into it. All right, we'll do it at another time. Then always happy to ch- chat. Like I don't get to chat craft very often, or, or business management side of the uh, ditch digging equation. Um, so 
Yeah. I mean, that was why I encouraged you guys to do this podcast. <laughs> exactly. Oh, exactly. Talk about this stuff. <laughs> yeah. If, if you don't know, if you're like a relatively new listener, uh, I was talking to Gail and Howard Taylor at a convention years and years and years ago. And I thought, you know, Matt and I have really good chemistry and no one's talking about the business side of writing. So I'm thinking about doing like inviting Matt on to do like a conversation about business. And both of them were so adamantly cur- encouraging me that I knew it had to be done. So that's why I call them the godmother and godfather of this podcast, because I don't know if I would have done it, approached Matt for it, uh, had they not encouraged me. Yay! I feel like (laughs) it's like the best thing I leave in this world. (laughs) Oh, oh no. Makes me so happy. (laughs) Well, tell us where to find you online. Uh, you can find me if you just Google Gail, that's G-A-I-L, the the British, I guess, is the spelling for that one. Um, Carriger, C-A-R-R-I-G-E-R. Just Google that. And uh, one of the things I have a handle on is my SEO. So <laughs> all of my stuff should come up immediately at the top. Um, yeah, and you, my website is best. It has every platform you can find me on. But if you want to specifically follow me on a platform, then you can. Um, I've been on a kind of a bit of a diet uh, in terms of like being online because it's scary out there right now yeah. it always um, but if what you want is any kind of writing or business chat I really only do that ever on Twitter because that's the place where most of my other writer friends are um, so that is the best place to follow me if you want like any kind of running but it's really like I said a nonfiction is not really part of my brand so I don't I don't talk about it that much, except during NaNoWriMo, when I basically, during the month of November, I'm like, here's all the stuff I've ever actually written on the craft of writing. Um, That's, yeah, there is is brilliant. I have a really good resources section of my website. It's on the about section of my website, and it's resources, and there's a whole section for um, beginning authors, and a whole section for, like, business like middle career authors on like deep dives into some of the stuff I've talked I'm talking about like cover art design and that sort of thing. So I do have those resources for that the stickers might particularly appreciate. Excellent. Matt, tell us about Savage Legion. It's out right now. It's my debut epic fantasy novel. My mother assures me it is the greatest epic fantasy novel. <laughs> <laughs> hey, one of our one of our Discord members read it three times in the first week. Oh, well, there you go. My mother's yeah. theory confirmed right there. So go get that right now. I'd really appreciate it. And if you've read it, I'd also appreciate any uh, reviews and ratings you want to leave. Places like Amazon and Goodreads, as previously discussed in this episode. Also, my first uh, middle grade novel, my first book for kids, is up for pre-order right now. It's called Bump. It's about uh, you know grief and bullying and lucha libre and all kinds of really cool stuff i'm very very proud of it and very excited about that's coming out uh, january of next year and uh you can find me talking about all these things on twitter at matt f and wallace and my youtube channel angry writer and my website matt-wallace.com i'm gonna add something really quickly because i can wahaha which is <laughs> because this is ditch diggers what a lot of people don't realize is that the reason we ask for reviews all the time is because the more reviews you have, it really does affect the algorithms for discoverability for books. So there is a because for that, like you want to leave reviews because it really helps the book find new readers. Um, And there's a, there's there are thresholds that places like Amazon and Goodreads put in, in for like, you, you can't crack certain levels of, algorithms and discoverability if you don't have enough reviews so please review stuff please if you love the book review it yeah please that's, thank that's you very good yes, point. thank you for explaining not just the vanity thing this is very practical we're still trying to savage legion is just is working on cracking that first 50 on amazon which is one of those thresholds as previously discussed so yeah it's not just so i can read people praising my book these things really help the book and my career and the success and life of both so thanks and you don't you don't have to have bought the book on amazon to review it on amazon either no that's very true yeah just if you read it you can rate and review it excellent thank you for for clarifying that um my 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 latest stuff is actually i am live streaming uh, several days a week on Twitch right now. I am live streaming the I Should Be Writing shows. So if you want to interact with me 
and uh, show up in the chat. That's 12.30s Eastern Time on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I do a Monday AMA chat uh, at 12.30, same time. And I don't record that. I just sit and chat with people if they want to talk about anything. And then I game, like, Thursday nights and Sunday afternoons because I'm just really enjoying Twitch and I like computer gaming. So I don't have any new projects that are out except, oh wait, I do. Sorry, I I have to remember I wear other hats. I co-edited the Escape Pod 15th Anniversary Anthology and that will be out October 20th. And there is a Six Wakes uh, short story in there. So if you are a fan of Six Wakes or a fan of Escape Pod, maybe check that out. It's just Escape Pod... uh, I think it's Escape Pod the Anthology or Escape 15th Anniversary Anthology. You can search for it pretty easily. It just popped up. I just noticed it on one of my... So the algorithm must be working. Woo! I saw it. I was like, oh, what's going on? That is exciting. Yeah, so uh, that's... You can find out more about that and other things at my website, merverse.com. Actually, that's not on there. I need to update that. But hopefully by the time you hear this, I will have updated my site. (laughs) reminder yes exactly so um yeah that's it for me thank you so much for being on the show again gail we'll always love thank having you. you oh anytime seriously i i always enjoy it so much and uh i i only reveal my secrets to you guys so. <laughs> oh thank Girl. you oh. well uh i'll see you next week matt and hopefully not too long uh in the future gail you can support us at patreon.com slash mightymur. Ditch Diggers! Theme song by Devo Spice, devospice.com.